In 2019, Virginia joined just three other states in making Juneteenth a paid state holiday. Musician Pharrell Williams joined Virginia's governor at a press conference to make the announcement. July 4th, 1776, not everybody was free in celebrating their Independence Day. So here's our day. And if you love us, it'll be your day too. The tireless work of activists and community members has been surfacing African-American histories like Juneteenth and bringing them to wider audiences. For historian Laurenette Lee, telling these stories is difficult but worth it. It's like coming up out of quicksand. And, and the more you get it out there in the public space, the more just feel like this is why I do this work. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. Today on the show, we're celebrating Juneteenth with two women who are uncovering the stories of their communities. Laurenette Lee is a public historian and lecturer at the University of Richmond. She didn't grow up celebrating Juneteenth. Most people hadn't heard much about it till the 1990s. But today she shares the story far and wide and says celebration is long overdue. Laurenette, what is the story of Juneteenth? What should every American know and be taught? Um, I think it's important for people to realize that in 1865, when freedom was declared, not everyone was free. The enslaved people in Texas did not learn that they were free until June 19th, uh, 1865. Um, and that is when Major General Gordon Granger arrived with 2,000 Union troops. But even though that story is important, it is the continuance of this celebration that is equally important because American history has not been kind to us. American life has not been kind, but still people gather to commemorate and celebrate the end of slavery. And in many ways, that's reconnecting with people, with family members, just as they did immediately after slavery ended. What does it mean for Virginia to recognize Juneteenth as a paid holiday for everyone? On the eve of the Civil War, there were at least half a million enslaved people in Virginia. And in Richmond itself, where we have Shaco Bottom, where so many people were bought and sold and sent south and west because it was an economic hub. It means a great deal to see and understand history from the perspective of those who had been left out, who had been deemed uh, less than and in fact were not even considered human, to recognize Juneteenth is bringing humanity back into focus. Was it easy to get the state holiday, or did activists really have to work at it? Activists always have to work to make any change possible. It may appear that it only took a year or so, but it's always activists on the case, on the scene, pushing advocating, establishing collaborations, building allies and trust to bring about change, especially because the way we have been taught, uh, people don't really appreciate other perspectives. But it's in communication with those who know another history, know uh, a different perspective, that we can begin to get some changes made, bring about more equity. You know, for centuries, Virginia has been called the mother of presidents, and yes. people have traveled far to tour the plantations and the Civil War battlefields. But enslavement of half a million people is seldom mentioned, not even in the Virginia textbooks. Yes. And when you think about Virginia as being the so-called mother of presidents, what we don't see are the enslaved people, the enslaved families, the enslaved mothers on those plantations who literally 
were birthing children, infants that fed into an economic hub. It's hard for us to imagine that upon having a child, it could easily be sold away. That you would not have any control over your child's life, or much less your own. But that was the case for enslaved people, as well as uh, free blacks. Uh, There was always the threat of being kidnapped. Um, Particularly parents had to endure that constant threat of their children being kidnapped and sold into slavery. Uh, And so the end of slavery meant that there was an opportunity to really live life fully. You know, you've been doing so much of this public history. We often call it hidden history or uncovering history. But are the histories really hidden, or are they just less well-known by white people mostly? I think it's a combination of both. Yeah. It they. The histories are less well-known by white people, but oftentimes um, black people have not known all of their history, not only because it had not been taught, but the elders didn't want to talk about the brutality of it. How can you make sense of the senseless to young people? And so I do think this is a, a moment of reckoning that though it is hard, it's necessary. You've been doing research to uncover a graveyard for formerly enslaved people right there on the University of Richmond campus. Who are they? Shelby Driscoll, who actually conducted the research, really dug deep into the primary sources and the secondary sources as well um, and uncovered a world that we had not known of. We knew that, you know, it was owned by plantation owners, men of wealth, but we didn't know who would have worked that land. And that's usually the case when you look at this kind of history. And so this was really truly groundbreaking work. Um, And that's the kind of work that I find myself being drawn to. Uh, I remember at the Virginia Historical Society, now the Virginia Museum of History and Culture, I was on the team that helped create the database Unknown No Longer. It was a database of slave names. And in the work that I do consulting around Virginia Maymont, for example, um, we look at the names of people who had been left out of the history but who are really central, integral parts of our history. And so when we think about Juneteenth, when we think about, oh, Virginia designating this as a a paid holiday, well, it's time. It's actually past time. So many people have given so much and received so little. You've said America has parallel histories, a black history, a white history. Do you think that we're beginning to share and merge those histories? I don't know that we're beginning to share and merge because we're just beginning to learn about it. And I think for some people, they're in shock and awe, disbelief, discomfort. And so there's a matter of we need to deal with all of that and think about what action steps we may need to make to bring about some equity and equality and justice. Because when you look at every sector of life, from the womb to the grave, there's so many disparities. It's sad and discouraging, but we have to keep pressing on. Are you more discouraged now than before you were digging deep into some of this history? Mm, no, when I'm digging deep, I'm in it. Because it, for me, it doesn't shut down at 5 o'clock. I, it, it follows me into my dreams, and I have nightmares. And, but 
coming up out of it after it's released to the public, the work that's done, it's like coming up out of quicksand. And, and the more you get it out there in the public space, the more just feel like this is why I do this work. Laurenette, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Thank you, Sarah. I appreciate your reaching out to me and your listening. Laurenette Lee is a public historian and lecturer at the University of Richmond. For 40 years, Jim Crow laws split the predominantly black community of Halls Hill from surrounding white areas. Today, the Northern Virginia area is largely gentrified. Wilma Jones grew up in Halls Hill and has written a book sharing its stories. She says it's too late to save Grandma's house, but it's not too late to save her history. Wilma, you grew up in Halls Hill, a segregated community in Arlington, Virginia not so far from D.C. What was it like when you were growing up? Did you love it? Oh, I loved my neighborhood. I felt loved. I felt like it was a magical place because everywhere that I went, most of the people were either friends of my family or family. Um, Black neighborhoods in Arlington were very unique because they had a large percentage of the families who actually owned their homes. So you had your great-grandmother, your grandmother, probably on both sides. If not in one neighborhood, maybe one was in a South Arlington Black neighborhood and the other was in Halls Hill in the North Arlington neighborhood. But it was unique because it was very tight-knit and also because the government did things to try to wall us in. We had two parts of our neighborhood that were surrounded by walls. But in addition to keeping our people from going into the white neighborhoods, it also kept other people from coming into our neighborhood. So they were very insular and very super tight and cohesive. And I often say that you could do something wrong as a kid in one part of the neighborhood. And by the time you got home, your parents already knew because someone saw you and (laughs) called your mom. Tell me about your great-grandparents. They came to Halls Hill for jobs after the Civil War. Actually, the only one I really know for sure is my great-grandmother on my dad's side, who was enslaved. Her name was Elizabeth King. She was enslaved in Norfolk, Virginia. And she, with a group of other people, came to Arlington. They walked from Norfolk. Walked. That's 200 miles or more. Absolutely. And sometimes when I think that I can't make it, when I'm facing challenges, I remember that my great-grandma walked to Arlington from Norfolk. And I say, with her blood running through my veins, I can do anything. Why were so many newly freed enslaved people walking to the Arlington area? Well, there were multiple reasons. I'd say the first one was its proximity to D.C. Um, D.C. didn't have segregation. And also because there was an area where they could buy a home. Of course, the prices were depressed because it was only black people here. Um, But the other reason, and one of the major reasons, was because following the end of the Civil War, um, there was a government department set up, a cabinet-level department called Freedmen's Bureau. Um, and if you, you'll find that a number of things in the Arlington area are named after John M. Langston. He was the first black congressman from Virginia, but he was also the inspector general of the Freedmen's Bureau. So black people felt like this is a place where we can be protected. So it was set up to train black people in trades, to give them education so they could learn how to read. And many of them lived there. There were like a thousand um, like row houses there. But then at the end of Reconstruction, when you know there was a pushback on black people actually, you know, becoming stand-up kind of citizens, they started running for office. White people in Arlington said, oh no, and um, they pressured the government and that Freedman's Village um, camp 
that was set up to help black people to, you know, become hopefully equal and give them, you know, a portion of their rights, even though we didn't get 40, 40 acres and a mule, that was ended. And that was when the beginning of um, major discrimination and Jim Crow and those kinds of things happened in the southern states. So your great-grandmother, who walked from Norfolk, became a maid in a community called Cherrydale, but you write that the KKK was active there and many had to seek refuge. Oh, absolutely. The KKK was huge in Arlington in the 1920s and 1930s, in the beginning of Jim Crow. They were so popular that they sponsored a little league team. And every Sunday um, at the site of what is now a a major shopping center here in Arlington called uh, Boston, every Sunday they had cross burnings there. So um, in the 1920s and 30s, Arlington had a major uh, influx of KKK leadership. And um, George Rockwell's Nazi party actually was headquartered in Arlington, too. They got started in like the 40s and 50s. So Arlington always had a thread of, um, of white supremacist radicalism. You, you mentioned a wall around Halls Hill. You wrote that in the early 1900s, developers in Arlington got permission from the government there to build a wall around Halls Hill and other communities. Why a wall? They were building new developments in what was wooded areas that were near our community. And the leadership of what was called the Board of Supervisors at the time um, worked with the delegates to the Virginia State Senate and House, and they developed some legislation that was specifically for Arlington. And basically what it allowed was, and and I, I characterize it like this, when you go to look at a new build now and you go into the home, they show, they tell you, you can have granite or marble. You can have, you know, a master bedroom on the first floor or all of these options. Mm -hmm. Having us, that part of that wall was an option that was Uh, provided to the people who were purchasing homes that bordered the black community. And so they got to choose whether they wanted brick, cinder block, or wood. And it was just an option, but it was an option that they all had to have because they wanted to make sure that black people could not, what we called, cut through white neighborhoods. And so we were basically walled in on two sides, and the other side was a natural one where the highway went. So there were only two ways in and two ways out of our neighborhood. Did they tear the wall down when you were a child? No. Parts of the wall still stand. When you were little, did you get that that's why the wall was there? Absolutely, we knew that. Absolutely. We knew that white people didn't want us in their neighborhoods, and they made that fairly clear. Um, When we would walk through, I mean, unfortunately, it's still happening now. um, But yeah, when we would walk through a white neighborhood, uh, it was noticeable. And I can remember um, people, you know, especially when the schools were, our school was initially desegregated and we walked sometimes. We had a bus, but if you stayed after school for a program or for sports or something, when we would walk through the white neighborhoods, we, you know, there would be people who would see us and they would come outside and stand on their front porch until we walked past their house. So um, it was, we knew that we were not wanted. Would your parents say, don't do that? Did they worry about you? Oh, sure. They worried. They probably worried about me more than anybody else because I would speak my mind. But um, as long as we weren't doing anything wrong, um, our parents stood behind us 100%. So I didn't have any issues. And I really, I mean, it was... It's kind of like gravity. Racism is kind of like gravity back in those days. You know, you don't complain about gravity because gravity just is. You don't complain because, you know, your thing fell off the table because, it, the, you know, it rolled off because gravity. So at that point in time, even though civil rights and all of that was going on, at my micro level, It was, you know, it was racism. When I went to the five and dime store and that nasty woman, Miss Dottie, followed me around and watched my every move for the entire time I was there, 
I, it was just kind of the price of doing business. She wasn't going to stop me from going to get my batting ball. But I knew that she did not want me there. But I also knew that she wanted my quarter. <laughs> you know, so um, it, it was just a part of life. Um, and it is really, really sad. But I felt like... Um, the folks in the white neighborhood who didn't want to interact with me and us, I kind of felt bad for them because I felt like I, our life was a whole, even though we didn't have curb and gutter and maybe I had a black and white TV and they had a color TV or whatever, or their house was bigger. I felt like my life was more fun. Like my, my house, my life, my family, my neighborhood had more flavor because like you said, their grandparents didn't live close by. Um, you know, they didn't have that, super strong connection in their neighborhoods like we did. And that's why I said in my book, it was more than a neighborhood. You write about a woman in Halls Hill who sued Arlington County over the poll tax where you had to pay money in order to vote. She lost her case, took it to the Virginia Supreme Court, lost there, then took it to the Supreme Court and lost. That's political activism. Yes, Miss Jessie Butler. Um, I, when I read about that, I didn't know about that. I read about that and started doing, you know, all research in periodicals and yeah. was just super impressed with the fortitude that, you know, these folks in this neighborhood had and how how they were not dissuaded um, because of the fact that truly they knew that they were fighting for the right thing. So um, it was a wonderful environment to grow up in. There was a woman who lived up the street from me on Dinwiddie Street whose name is Lil Brown. Um, they've named a community center after her. But she was, my father used to say, Lil Brown is a fireball. And um, <laughs> she was very often told no by the county board. And she didn't let it stop her. And she actually helped to found what's called the Arlington Community Action Program, which made a huge difference in the life of black people in Arlington because it provided um, pre-K and support for moms and things like that when the county, you know, was kind of not giving us the resources that were needed. So I look at what people before me have accomplished. And so that's why I am motivated to tell the story and to keep doing research because these aren't all the stories. What's happening to Halls Hill today? It was an all-Black community 100 years ago. What about now? It was all-Black until 1979. Now, mind you, white people always owned some of the property, but they rented it to Black people. Um, in the 1990s, when um, the price of real estate really went crazy, and then, you know, through like the early 2000s, Arlington had a complete shift. We had all kinds of infill development, um, big developers coming into the county. Uh, and so now our neighborhood is greatly gentrified, and we are about 18% black. So, and I'd say probably of that 18%, I'd say maybe 10%, 12% are people who were three, four, or five generations um, deep. And, and I think that the flavor of the neighborhood is still strong because many of the people who have moved into the neighborhood have embraced the history and the importance of the contributions of this neighborhood. Again, because, you know, the four children who integrated schools in the state were from this neighborhood. And a number of things from the other Black neighborhoods as well are being saved. But what we're also trying to do is to get them into like the Arlington curriculum and, you know, so that the history is something that lives on. I think of the kind of work you're doing, uncovering this important history. And it's not hidden history. It's just not known to the larger population, right? Exactly. They do not know, because, in my opinion, because we as a community have not done a really good job of, you know, keeping it top of mind. So those are the kinds of things that we're doing now. And um, like, as I said earlier, one of the things that I am most focused on is getting this into our school curriculum and 
now that we have a new superintendent and also because of the things that have happened from a, um, a racial equity and awakening perspective uh, in this country that um, I, I am finding it more and more. I mean, I had an experience where uh, a boy that I went to, he's a man now, but a boy that I went to elementary school with um, actually sent me a message um, which totally touched me, and I, I just couldn't believe it. Uh, I had not seen him since sixth grade, and he contacted me and said that he read my book and that George Floyd led him to read my book. He said he had heard about the book, but he had procrastinated. But when everything happened and, you know, it was kind of like you can't ignore it anymore, he went back and read and purchased the book and told me about how the book impacted him, how he had to come to the realization that his parents were racist and they weren't out and out racist, but he actually said that we have to basically wrestle our demons, our racial demons in the light. You know, we've got to bring this stuff to light. And it made me feel like this is one of the reasons that this book is important is because it is making people see the other side, because I don't think that our story has been told by us enough for people to hear it. I, yeah. I try to express it and say, you know, put yourself in my place just for a minute. You know, I'm a five-year-old. I go outside. I don't have sidewalks. I've got this tar gravel street, but I get in the car with my dad and we go to the Safeway every Saturday. And I see three blocks from my house across Lee Highway, how the white people live on Buchanan Street. They have sidewalks, they have asphalt streets, and their parents have this, pay the same level of tax that my parents pay. I said, so, you know, when you look at it from a kid's perspective, I think that it helps them to see it in a different light. Wilma Jones, this has been wonderful. Thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Thank you, Sarah, for the opportunity. I've really enjoyed it. Wilma Jones is the author of My Halls Hill Family, More Than a Neighborhood. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. The golden age of gospel music in the 1940s and 50s brought us well-known greats like Mahalia Jackson and Sister Rosetta Tharp. But what about the gospel music that came later, when hip-hop and soul were dominant in African-American music? Audrina Harold is an historian at the University of Virginia. Her new book, When Sunday Comes, takes a deep dive into Black gospel music of the 80s and 90s and the culture that surrounded it. Claudrina, When Sunday Comes, gospel music in soul and hip-hop eras, is not written just by the historian in you, but also by the you who grew up in a family who loved and appreciated gospel music. Play for me one of the earliest songs you fell in love with. Aretha Franklin's Mary Don't You Weep. The voice, the passion, the mystery. Her technical proficiency as a vocalist was as apparent to me as the singularity of Michael Jordan. When you think about the African-American singing tradition, the cultural tradition, the musical tradition, and the importance of call and response as a formal gesture, but also as a way in which community is made. Could I shine? 
<laughs> what incredible power and star power and almost sexual tension in the way she belts out this gospel piece. No doubt, no doubt. I mean, power, humor, spirituality, and oh, her impeccable sense of timing. And that live audience loving it every step of the way. Every step of the way. And them urging her, egging her on. And then for her to say, you know, he gets up walking like a natural man. And of course, here you see that tension between the secular and the sacred. In fact, I would say there's no tension at all when Aretha Franklin is involved because she just obliterates any division. She is in the church, but as an artist, she takes us to church. And it's very important to understand that when she comes out with Amazing Grace in 1972, which until I think Whitney Houston's Preacher's Wife was the biggest selling gospel album of all time, this is a this is a turbulent moment. This isn't a post-Malcolm X. This is a post-King nation. This is a post-John Kennedy nation. These are the Nixon years. But also when you think about music, you know, the year before that, Marvin Gaye comes out in April, you know, with what's going on. Of course, Sly Stone responds in December of 1971. There's a riot going on. And so in a moment where the world has turned dark, even the music has turned dark, and it's opening up for this cultural explosion that we call funk, Aretha is bringing the good news. She's bringing the gospel. This is a monumental moment, and this is a crossover smash. This album remains on on the top of the gospel charts for years, and of course, this is an album that she makes with um, the institution builder and the king of gospel, uh, James Cleveland. But uh, this is an album that ushers in a new moment in gospel music where people can think about Uh, the commercial possibilities of gospel. And of course, we know that during this period, you have the staple singers taking us there. But we also know that four or five years before um, the release of Amazing Grace, there's another crossover smash that comes out really or hits the airways in 1968. And that's Edwin Hawkins' Oh Happy Day. Listen to those jazz chords. Listen to the fusion of gospel and pop, but also listen to the distinctiveness of that classic California sound. You can hear it. that what is that device in gospel music that moment it is when sunday comes <laughs> it is it is a um it is you know it is this this high note this collective note this um collective response it almost it sounds like you know the sound of celebration the sound of joy the sound of um a breakthrough one might even say it's the sound of pentecost uh, you know, the great civil rights activist and and um, scholar, Wyatt T. Walker, you know, often said that, um, you know, what black people are singing religiously will provide you with a clue as to what is happening to them sociologically. And when I hear that song, I can hear um, the joy um, of 1968. I can hear um, this sense of possibility that we're breaking into, breaking into something new. And um, indeed, that's what, you know, Oh Happy Day did. I mean, it was a international smash with that crossover success and with that popularity um, emerges criticism. So within the field of gospel music, there has always um, been this debate about crossover success and and how much um, 
How much, you know, should gospel music incorporate the sounds of uh, soul and funk? And of course, if we move to the present moment, you know, let's say hip hop. Of course, the problem with those debates is that uh, they don't take into account that many of the um, many of the uh, genres and and and, you know, that we would classify as secular R&B, hip hop, funk emerge from and draw influence from gospel music. So when we begin to think about black music, there's a fluidity between the sacred and the secular. Why did the church people think gospel had gone too far? What was wrong with gospel crossing over? One of the issues is, uh, you know, this question of sound. And I think within gospel, the desire to preserve what some people consider what's formally distinct about the gospel art form, whether it be um, a particular melody, whether it be harmonic structure, whether it be um, how many times you need to say Jesus or God. So in the 1980s, for example, there emerged this debate that some artists like B.B. and C.C. Winans or even earlier with Andre Crouch, that they were that they were making music that didn't say Jesus enough, or there was this lyrical ambiguity. So I think there's this sense that when the listener hears gospel music, they need to know (laughs) that it's gospel music. And there's this question about, can spirit exist in any form? And I think even when you look at artists that cross over, and here I want to turn to the Clark sisters and the Clark sisters uh, group born in Detroit, based in Detroit. The early 1980s, they had really their first crossover smash. You brought the sunshine and you can hear the ways in which their lead um, composer, organist, Twinkie Clark. You can you can hear the ways in which she fuses gospel, jazz and also disco. It reminds me a little bit of Donna Summers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really? you definitely hear you hear that disco. And I mentioned disco. I should have mentioned reggae. And of course, this is the ways in which a song can connect you to so many traditions and so many forms. It is the unbroken circle. You write that the mother of the Clark sisters was almost thrown out of church for the song, even though, of course, she wasn't part of it. What was controversial? So their mother, Maddie Moss Clark, who was uh, the musical director of the Church of God in Christ and really a central figure in terms of gospel history. You can't tell the story of gospel without Maddie Moss Clark. I mean, she not only trained her daughters, but she trained so many amazing musicians that came out of Detroit. But this song was a big hit. And so they performed on the Grammy Awards. And I think it was 1983. And they tear the stage up. I mean, they just rack it. And their mom performs with them. And for some people in the church, this was too much. And so there's always these debates about the spaces that gospel musicians inhabit. Should your music be played in the disco? Should you perform at, you know, a secular award show? There's always, should you sign with a secular label? In fact, my family (laughs) is somewhat connected to some of those debates. There was another gospel song that had that same success, and that was the Mighty Clouds of Joy's Mighty High which came out in 1975 and was produced by a pretty established um, artist, producer, songwriter from Jacksonville named Dave Crawford, who was my uncle. And it was a hit. It reached number one on the, on the, on the disco charts. Listen to my story, 
And so this song is being played in discos across the nation. And it's also being played at discos where there are men and women and men and men dancing together. And so this is um, also connected to gay life and, and, and that's some of it. And so in 1976, Jet Magazine has a cover story and it's like, you know, has gospel music gone too far? And they actually would call that gospel rock. And there's this debate between James Cleveland, you know, the once again, the king of gospel and the mighty clouds of joy about this song. And it's about gospel. It was about gospel being in a space and also be, being taken seriously. So so with James Cleveland, I really want to complicate it a little more. And, and, and it's not always just about, you know, tension, because um, sometimes it's just, you know, black people, black artists working certain things out. It's about thinking about, OK, what's good for the art form? What's not good for the art form? And that it's a good artistic move. I mean, this is why James Cleveland in 1968 created the Gospel Music Workshop of America, which drew thousands of delegates where they would spend, you know, a week and a half talking about gospel music, talking about the business of gospel, talking about what's good for the art form and what's not good for the art form. Um, and then bringing it back to their local churches. And bringing it back to their local churches, because that is where the music lives and will always live, is in the church. And one of the folks who is extremely important when we think about that is, is John P. Key. John P. Key was an artist um, born in Durham, North Carolina. As he notes, outside the county line, he had a distinctive kind of regional flavor. Um, and also, this is an interesting time in African-American political life and cultural life, because this is also a moment in the 80s and the 90s where African-Americans are also moving back to the South. And he celebrates the South. He celebrates his Southern heritage. And he also celebrates his relationship with God. One of my favorite songs from him is Lily in the Valley. And it just captures his artistic singularity. And I love to hear that now. That's a lady, Lord, it's in the valley. And that's bright as the morning star. stirring and hypnotic at the same time. Yes, it's just gut bucket soul. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it's like gut bucket soul. It's like um it's like Sam and Dave with a dash of Otis Redding and it represents the rhythms of the south and the particular rhythms of North Carolina. And that's something that's also so important about gospel music and its evolution is how the art form reflects regional dynamics. There's something distinctive that comes out of a place like North Carolina that not only gives us John P. Key, but also gives us Shirley Caesar, who has um, achieved a level of success and a level of um, <laughs> a longevity that is just that is unmatched in 1987 she releases a hugely successful album live in Chicago that same year she uh, wins a seat on Durham City Council Durham North Carolina she she embraced an activist Christianity I think she embraced a sort of liberation theology she embraced the idea that you had to be concerned with the material conditions of people, and so she wanted to deal with the effects of deindustrialization. She wanted to deal with the problem of homelessness. She wanted to deal with um, the issue of urban development and making sure that it it dealt with the problems of um, the working poor. Um, and even as she was engaged in politics, she was creating music that also reflected those concerns. And so, in 1987, once again, she came out with an album live in Chicago. And the most popular song, or I should say sermonette on that album, was called Hold My Mule, where she tells the story of an 86-year-old farmer who had joined what she called a dead church, 
who frowned upon, a church that frowned upon his religiosity and his expressiveness. Yes, yes. That is like Zora Neale Hurston on wax. On this sermonette, I think Shirley Caesar demonstrates both her unrivaled skills as a storyteller and her ability to capture the class tensions gripping Black America during the post-civil rights era. And in this moment, I think she also complicates conventional narratives. I mean, this is a successful farmer. Interestingly enough, in a moment where Black people are are losing land, in a moment where there's lawsuits against racial discrimination in terms of land ownership, but she's, she's giving us a different narrative. She's saying, not one time have I been to the courthouse. You know, not one time have I been to the cemetery, but you don't want me to dance in your church. Classic. And it's amazing no matter how often I hear that song, I still get chills. Uh, so at the height of her popularity in the 80s, Shirley Caesar's label mate was Al Green. And he had a decade-long career in the gospel music industry, won Grammys, and made some amazing albums. Um, but there is one song on his album, Call Me, from 1973, Call Jesus is waiting, and it is classic Al Green, classic the union of the spirit and the flesh, the secular and the sacred. And we're going to play the song, but I also suggest that you watch the video of Al Green singing Jesus is waiting on Soul Train. So one of the arguments I I make in the book is that Al Green's decision to embrace gospel was not just a spiritual one, but an aesthetic one, an artistic one as well. It's 1980. Hip-hop is emerging. That Southern, classic Southern soul that we associate with Muscle Shoals and Memphis and Stax Records, it's fading. And you are an artist that has so much range, but there's something very distinctively Southern about you. And I think what gospel allowed Al Green to do was be as Memphis soul as he wanted to be, but to be as Nashville country as he wanted to as well. And so uh, for me, I wanted to tell the story of how gospel as an art form enabled Al Green to grow artistically. And I would say that we have those moments now. When I think of Kanye West making a gospel album, and no matter how you may think about the quality of the album, gospel music is, especially for African-Americans, is so central to sort of mainstream culture as well. Beyonce. You know, the decision to sing Precious Lord, Take My Hand on the Grammys. It's like, yeah, I'm I'm Beyonce and I do all of these things, but I'm a part of this tradition and I want you to know that I can nail this song too. And so thinking about Al Green opens it up for us to have that kind of conversation about, about gospel music, how it's so central, and that it's not just an art form that is important to people who regularly go to church or regularly listen to the music, but it informs everything. 
that's why it deserves a central place in our conversation about the development of this nation and its cultural gifts to the world. Audrina Harold is an historian at the University of Virginia. Her new book is When Sunday Comes, Gospel Music in the Soul and Hip-Hop Eras. Support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients, uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monacan Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Cassandra Deering and Aviva Costo are our interns. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. Oh,